open the Word of God this morning to Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14, Hosea being the first of the minor prophets. So after Ezekiel, Daniel, you have Hosea. We will read the last chapter of this prophecy. Before we do, it's worth reminding ourselves of the broader context of the book. Recall that Hosea was the prophet whom God called to take a wife of whoredoms. That is, he was to take a wife who would be unfaithful to him. That's verse 2 in the Lord, chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. And indeed, that happened. He married a woman named Gomer, and she proved to be unfaithful. Some of their children were born, uh, were the children of other men. But in addition, God not only called this prophet to take such a wife, he called this prophet to take her back even after she was unfaithful. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, Go, yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress. God called Hosea to do all this as a picture of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness, their spiritual adultery against God, but then God's spiritual faithfulness to his bride in taking us back. So let's have that broad context in view when we come to Hosea 14. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. For thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily. And cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread. And his beauty shall be as the olive tree. And his smell as Lebanon. And they that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. For me is thy fruit found. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Thus far we read God's word. On the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32. This can be found in the back of our song books after the songs on page 19. It is the practice of this congregation to use this as a teaching tool. We preach through this catechism each Sabbath day. And we're up to Lord's Day 33. 
how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Child of God, what is the spiritual orientation of your heart this morning? Is it inclined in the direction of sin? Or is it aimed at our God? And understand in asking that question, I am not asking what is the orientation of your life from an external point of view. Not asking what others would say is the orientation of your heart based on what they can observe. I'm asking about your heart. Is it pointed in the direction of our God? Or is it pointed in the direction of sin? And that's an important question because as God's children, we recognize that sadly there are times that our hearts are pointed in the wrong direction. And maybe that's true for a good number of us this morning. And that underscores the importance of considering the whole doctrine of conversion. It's important, that underscores the importance of having a sermon such as this one. For even if our hearts are aimed in the right direction this morning, we recognize that there are those times where it's aimed in the wrong direction. And thus, we need to be reminded of our calling to turn away from sin and turn unto our God. And that's the truth that we consider this morning as we come to Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's the doctrine that's on the foreground here. That's evident from the opening question of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist. This Lord's Day is about true conversion. And this Lord's Day proceeds to give us a, an overview of the different elements of conversion. Question 88 asks how many parts of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist. And it says there's Two parts. There's a, a negative component and a positive component. Negatively, it consists of the mortification of the old man of sin. And then positively, there's the quickening of the new man. But then the catechism goes a step further. And within each of those broad headings, the negative and the positive, the catechism then proceeds to show us that within each, there's a, 
an attitude of the heart and a, a corresponding life that flows out of that. So that question 89 asks, what is the mortification of the old man? And it begins by saying it's a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. But then there's also the life that flows out of that, that we more and more hate and flee from sin. The same holds true with regards to the positive aspect. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. And then the life that flows out of that, that with love and delight we live according to the will of God in all good works. Now it's important that we recognize that when the catechism explains conversion, of those, conversion along those lines, it is simply giving us the different elements that are a part of conversion. To state it negatively, it's not giving us a sequential or chronological order in which these different elements take place. But for the sake of clarity, for the sake of simplicity, and to help us, what we want to do this morning is take these different elements that are mentioned in Lord's Day 33 and rearrange them so that they do more closely follow the, the order, the sequence in which they would take place in our lives. That is, we want to look at conversion along the lines of how it goes in our own experience as God's people. And we do that with a view to helping all of us in our battle against sin, and especially to help us in those times when the spiritual orientation of our heart is aimed in the wrong direction. This sermon is meant to be a guide for how we get back on the right track. And so this morning, let's consider Lord's Day 33 under the theme conversion, returning unto the Lord our God. First, we will look at the sorrowful confession of conversion. Second, at the joyful life of conversion. And then third, the God-given fruit of conversion. Conversion, returning unto the Lord our God, the sorrowful confession, the joyful life, and the God-given fruit. Considering Lord's Day 33, it's entirely appropriate that we read from the book of Hosea, and specifically Hosea chapter 14, because this book emphasizes calling to turn to our God. We see that at the outset of chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Verse 2, take with you words and turn to the Lord. We see the same language in chapter 12, verse 6. Therefore, turn thou to thy God. Likewise, chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. It's important to recognize that each of these passages, passages is really a call to conversion because that's the most basic, the most fundamental idea of conversion. It has the idea of turning. So that while it's perfectly legitimate, 
for the catechism to define conversion in terms of the mortification of the old man and the quickening of the new man. More basic to the idea of conversion is that word turn. Negatively, it's a, a turning away from sin and turning unto our God. This is a word that comes to us as God's covenant people. This is not a word just for the wicked unbeliever. And that's evident from the fact that this prophecy is addressed to the nation of Israel. This is not a prophecy that's addressed to the heathen nations around Israel. But this was a word addressed to those northern ten tribes. And that's instructive for us because it means conversion is not just a a one-time thing, but it's really an ongoing process. So that while we can certainly speak of an initial conversion, such as the conversion that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9 with Saul of Tarsus becoming a believer for the first time, conversion extends beyond that. Scripture consistently calls God's covenant people, those who've already been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, to turn, to return to God. And that's telling us that conversion is something that's ongoing. Really, it's something that should take place daily, moment by moment, turning away from sin and turning unto our God. And we need to hear this call exactly because we are still sinners. And that inclination to sin that we have comes out here in this book. We see that, for example, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 7. That we are inclined to sin. Hosea 11, verse 7. And my people are bent to backsliding. We are prone to wandering. We are inclined to sin. And that's true because every one of us still has that old man of sin. That old man is in view here. In Lord's Day 33, Lord's Day 33 speaks of the mortification of that old man. That old man of sin is that depraved nature that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Their sinful nature that was passed down to us. A nature that hates God. A nature that hates the neighbor. And the nature that gives rise to all sorts of Sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful deeds, sinful desires. Even as it's expressed in Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Why is that necessary? For thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. We fall into sins on a daily basis. And it's because we continue to fall in sin. Because we have this inclination towards sin. That we need to hear this call, turn, return unto our God. Turn away from sin. Get off that path that leads to destruction. Instead, turn again unto God. Now this morning what we want to do is not just content ourselves with a general understanding of the idea of conversion. What we want to do this morning is really dig down into the elements of conversion and look at them along the lines of our experience and how this goes for us as God's people. What's all involved in 
turning or returning unto our God. This starts with a sorrowful confession of sin. And there's really two aspects to that. There's the sorrow for sin itself. And then the confession of sin that arises out of that. First, conversion starts with sorrow of heart. And while that does not come out as clearly here in Hosea, it does come out very clearly in the next prophetic book, Joel chapter 2. If we move forward in our Bibles, one book, Joel 2 verse 12, we read this. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. So notice we have that same language of turning to God. This passage is also talking about conversion, but now it helps us understand what's included in that. How does that to go? And it says, turn ye even to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mournings. Those are expressions of sorrow. And then it goes on to say in verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. This passage is making crystal clear that conversion includes this sorrow over our sin. And that's where the catechism itself points us. In question and answer 89, we ask the question, what is the mortification of the old man? And it begins by saying, it is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. And although the catechism is not giving us a sequential or chronological order, it's simply telling us the elements, nevertheless, this one does come first, both in the catechism and in our experience. It starts with sorrow of heart. And specifically, sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. So that the sorrow in view here is not simply Sorrow over the effects of sin or the consequences of sin. A man, may, a man or woman may well be sorry on account of the effects or consequences of sin. He or she may well be brought to tears when they consider the loss of reputation they've endured on account of sin or some consequences associated with it, but that's not true sorrow over sin. That's the type of sorrow that Second Corinthians chapter 7 calls a worldly sorrow that leadeth unto death. The sorrow of heart we are talking about is sorrow that I have provoked God by my sin, that I've offended Him, that I've displeased this God on account of my sin. Such sorrow comes from recognizing the character of our sin. That it's nothing less than spiritual adultery. And that's what the book of Hosea reminds us of. That was the lesson God was teaching the nation of Israel in calling Hosea to take a wife of That's evident from the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 2. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land 
hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. What God is saying is that there's a parallel here. Hosea, the way that your wife is going to be unfaithful to you is but a picture of how Israel has been unfaithful to me. It's teaching us that our sin is nothing less than spiritual adultery. Because the truth of God's word is that as his people, we are in a relationship with our God. Really, we are the bride of Jesus Christ. And that means when we sin, what we are doing is really going after other lovers. We are supposing that we can find our joy, our happiness, our contentment, our satisfaction in someone or something other than our Savior Jesus Christ. It's adultery. Is that how you see your sin, child of God? That's how Scripture teaches us to see it. We must see it that way because it's only when we recognize our sin for what it is that we will have sorrow, not just over the effects of sin, not just over the consequences of sin, but the fact that I have offended, I have provoked my God on account of my sin. That's where true conversion must begin. First, with a true sorrow of heart. That true sorrow of heart is to come to expression in seeking forgiveness through prayer. That's really the second element, the second aspect of true conversion. And that second aspect is taught for us explicitly in the chapter that we read, Hosea chapter 14. Verse 1, there's the call to return unto the Lord our God. And then verse 2 tells us what's included in that. Take with you words. That is, you are to go to God with a prayer. And then it goes on to give us the very words that we are to take. It goes on to put a prayer in our mouths. Verse 2, take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. That is, a part of returning to God, a part of true conversion is going to God in prayer to seek the forgiveness of our sins. It starts in the heart with the sorrow over our sin that we've offended God, but that sorrow must manifest itself in the words that we bring to our God, asking that He would forgive us of all of our sins, that He would take away our iniquities. So this is where returning in the Lord starts. A sorrowful confession of our sin. And now in teaching this, really what we are saying is that true conversion begins with repentance. Because everything that we've just explained is really the definition of repentance. What does it mean to repent? To repent is to be sorry for my sins and to seek forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means conversion begins with repentance. Conversion's broader than repentance. It includes more than repentance. But repentance is the beginning of it. Being sorry for my sin and seeking forgiveness. 
the same time, it's also worth noting that it's for good reason that the Catechism does speak of this as the mortification of the old man. That's the language we find. What of how many parts doth true conversion of man consist in? Question and answer 88 of two parts, and it begins with the mortification of the old man. And then 89, what is the mortification of the old man? A sincere sorrow of heart that we've provoked God. And that's appropriate, that's legitimate, because there's nothing that strips the power of that old man of sin more than being sorry for our sin and seeking forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we put to death that old man of sin. Now, since such a sorrowful confession of sin is so important, since conversion begins with repentance, we must ask the question, what will lead us to repent? What's going to drive this sorrowful confession of our sin? The answer of Scripture is the knowledge of God's mercy. And specifically, His willingness to receive us back in spite of our sins. And that too is taught beautifully for us in the book of Hosea. Because God's word to this prophet was not merely, take a wife of whoredoms. But His word to this prophet was, take her back. Even after she sinned. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Hosea 3, verse 1. This is after Gomer has proved herself to be unfaithful. And this is while she is in fact living with her other lovers. God's word to Hosea is this. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love a woman, beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress. But now notice this. According to to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel. What God is teaching His people is that just as Hosea is called to take back Gomer, so I will take you back. He's communicating His mercy towards us. The same thing is taught in Hosea 14, verse 4. Hosea 14, verse 4, the chapter that we read after we're instructed to return and to take with us words to our God, there's this word of Comfort, there's this word of encouragement in verse 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. That is, God will forgive us of all of our sins when we return unto Him. And more than that, He'll give us the, the spiritual grace to turn away from that sin. And to lead a new and godly life. He will heal us of that backsliding that we are so prone to, that we are bent on. And it's this knowledge about our God. It's apprehending this mercy by faith that drives that that drives this repentance, this sorrowful confession of our sin. Because if the only thing that we knew was that I have sinned against the holy and just God, 
I would never go to him. The only thing I knew is that he's the divine lawgiver, the just judge of heaven and earth, and that I have broken his commandments. I'm going to try to get away from this guy. Now, that would, that would be vain. There's no escaping the God of the heaven and earth, but yet we would do everything in our power to suppress the knowledge that this God exists, that this God must be worshipped. And all that is to say, the knowledge of sin by itself does not lead us to repent. What drives true repentance is the knowledge that there's mercy to be found in this God. It's the knowledge that when I go to Him with a broken heart, when I go to Him taking with me words, that His response is not going to be. That He yells, us, yells at us and says, what was wrong with you? How could you ever do such a thing? His response will not be that He makes us grovel before Him to prove how sorry we are for our sins. His response is not to give us the cold shoulder to punish us for a while until at last He relents. But instead, His response is that in His mercy, He forgives us. He receives us with an open embrace. Really, when He sees us returning unto Him, He comes out to meet us. And in His compassion, He forgives us of our sins. And it's only when we see and know this truth by faith that we will return unto Him with a sorrowful confession of sin. So congregation, do you believe this about our God? And so far as you doubt it, then look to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we have the explanation for how such a just God could ever take back such a sinful people. Because our God is indeed just. And that too is a part of the prophecy of Hosea. Really much of the book is God pointing out their sin and telling them the, the consequences, the punishment that's going to come upon them for their sin. If we back up just one verse from the chapter that we read, the end of chapter 13 verse 16 is representative of what much of the book tells us. Hosea 13 verse 16 Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. Those are words of judgment. God is saying that in His anger against sin, He's going to punish sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God's anger is been, has been turned away. That's the language that's found at the end of verse 4, for mine anger is turned away from him. And we ask, how could that be? 
And the answer is because God's anger, his wrath against sin was turned against, it was turned towards Jesus Christ. Our Savior who went to the cross to endure that fury, that wrath of God against our sins. He went there to bear the punishment that we deserve on account of our sins. And it's only on the basis of His perfect satisfaction that God's anger is now turned away from us. And what all of this is telling us is that there is forgiveness to be found in Him. So believe it, child of God. Do not believe the lie of the devil who wants you to believe that your sin is too great for God to forgive. Do not believe the lie of the devil that you must somehow earn your way back into God's favor. But believe the truth of the gospel. That on the basis of Christ's saving work. When we go to God in true sorrow of heart. Taking with our words. Asking that he would take away our iniquity. He will certainly heal our backsliding. He forgives. And hear him say that to you. Child of God this morning by faith. I forgive you. Let the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins be what causes joy to swell in your hearts this morning. Because there is reason to rejoice as God's people, knowing the forgiveness of sins. And it's that joy that then leads to the life of conversion. And that's what we want to see in the second place this morning. The joyful life of conversion. Conversion starts with a sorrow of heart that leads to confessing sin and seeking forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ by faith. But then it goes on to include this joy of heart that ultimately manifests itself in a life of conversion. starts with joy of heart. That's what the catechism teaches us in question and answer 90. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. And this joy comes exactly from knowing the forgiveness of sins. This joy comes from knowing all that God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. And thus it's no wonder that the catechism brings up this joy here. At this point in the catechism. Because where are we in the grand scheme of things? We're at the very beginning of the third section on gratitude. We've gone through the whole first section regarding our sin and what we deserve for our misery. We've covered the second section that we're saved. The knowledge of our salvation, our deliverance. That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And now in the third section, we have our gratitude. And a part of that gratitude is this joy. Joy that my sins have been forgiven. And God would have us to rejoice. 
He tells us to rejoice. Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. So that joy is not just a recommendation for the Christian. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just, well, if it fits with your personality, you really ought to manifest it. But if it doesn't, well, then that's okay. No. Joy should characterize every single child of God, regardless of our personality, of our disposition. So do you have that joy? It's lacking. Then we need to go back to the gospel. Because this is not something we're just going to conjure up in ourselves by saying, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be joyful. But this joy comes from knowing that in the plan of redemption, I am not Hosea, but I'm Gomer. I'm the one who's been unfaithful. I'm the one who's guilty of spiritual adultery. But though that's true, my God takes me back. He heals my backsliding. He brings me back into that fellowship so that I experience it once again. And He showers me with all the blessings of salvation as though I had never once been unfaithful to Him. If we lack joy this morning, what we need to do is go back to that truth of the Gospel and meditate upon it. Turn it over in our hearts and minds again and again and again until it sinks down into the depths of our hearts. And it thrills our souls. That's where joy comes from. But then when we have that joy, that joy then manifests itself in a life of conversion. And that life has both a negative and a positive. Negatively it involves turning away from sin and positively turning unto our God. And here we circle back to the catechism as it gives us an overview of the different elements and we pick up the elements that we have yet to cover. Starts with question and answer 89. What is the mortification of the old man? The sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. We've covered that, but now we grab the next element, which is this negative aspect of the life of conversion. That more and more we hate and flee from sin. What it means to turn away from sin. It starts with hating sin. And hating sin exactly because God Himself hates it. Hating sin because it's provoking to God. It's offensive to my God. And because He hates it, I'm going to hate it. And then we flee it. That we hate and flee them. So that rather than indulging in sin, we turn away from it. Rather than saying yes to temptation, we say no to temptation. And all this is indeed a part of the life of conversion. 
even as we're taught in the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 14, verse 3. This is a part of the words that we are to take to our God in returning unto Him. In Hosea 14, verse 3, we read this. Asher shall not save us. That's a reference to the nation of Assyria in whom the nation of Israel was tempted to put their trust. We will not ride upon horses. And that's brought up because God's law had forbid His people from ever having horses for military purposes, from having a a cavalry because they would be tempted to put their trust in their, their military might rather than putting their trust in God. So a part of the words they were to take was, Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. All this is an expression of saying, I want to be done with sin. I'm turning away from sin instead. I'm going to turn unto my God. And that's the positive. There's the negative turning away from sin, hating sin, fleeing sin. But then positively, instead turning unto God and living a life of obedience. And that's question answer 90. What is the quickening of the new man? It's a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. We've covered that. And now we pick up this last element. And with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And again, we see this in the book of Hosea. For example, Hosea 12, verse 6. We read it earlier, but now we'll finish it. Therefore, turn thou unto thy God. What does that look like? Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Live the way you're supposed to live. This is Hosea 14, verse 2, the second part. Our prayer is that God would take away our iniquity and receive us graciously. But then this is added. So will we render the calves of our lips. Literally, we will render, we will pay young bulls our lips. And now it's difficult to know exactly how to translate that, but it's clear that this is an expression of thankful praise to our God. It speaks of rendering pain young bulls that is bringing sacrifices to our God. And then it speaks of our lips because our lips are the instruments with which we lift up our voices to praise our God. And all of this is a part of conversion. Living to the glory and honor of our God. Seeking to do His will, which includes thanking Him and praising Him for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's when we are turning away from sin, hating it and fleeing it, and turning unto our God, living a life that's pleasing to Him, that there will then be the God-given fruit of conversion. Namely, good works. Those are the God-given fruit. And that's where the catechism concludes in this Lord's Day. Question and answer 90. Reference good works at the end. That we delight and to live according to the will of God in all good works. And 91 asks, but what are good works? And the answer is only those which proceed from a true faith 
are performed according to the law of God and to His glory. Good works are those things that proceed from a true faith. That His faith is the, the source of our good works. They flow from our faith so that it's impossible for the unbeliever to do anything truly good in the eyes of our God. They proceed from faith. Next it says that they are performed according to the law of God. That is, God's law is the, the standard. God's law is His rule for what is right versus wrong. What is good versus evil. And if something is going to be called a good work, it must be in harmony. It must be according to that standard. According to God's law. And third, they must be done to His glory. That must be the aim. Not our own glory. Not that others would observe what we've done and speak well of us, but that God would be glorified. And anything that fits that definition is a good work. And those good works are the fruits of conversion. That's evident from the structure, the flow of the catechism. Question answer 91 is put very deliberately at the end because our good works are not themselves an element of conversion, nor are they equal to conversion. We may not put an equal sign between conversion and good works, but instead they're the fruit, they're the product of conversion. What we want to see this morning is that this fruit is really God-given. That too is a part of the instruction of Hosea chapter 14. Verses 5 through 8. In verses 5 through 8, God describes His people in terms of various plants, of, in terms of vegetation, which is flourishing, which is growing well and is fruitful. Notice that, Hosea 14, verses 5 and following, I will be as the dew unto Israel, he shall grow as the lily, and cast forth his roots as Lebanon, that is, as the cedars of Lebanon. His branches shall, shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. They shall dwell under his shadow. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn, and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. So there's this picture of Israel as a, a flourishing plant. As that which is growing up is strong and is now productive. It's fruitful. But now the key is to see that standing behind all of that is the work of God's grace. Because verse 5 begins with, I will be as the dew unto Israel. What God is saying is, I'm the one who's going to make all this happen. So that the truth being taught for us in this passage is that God is the one who works this in us. Because He's the one who, first of all, gives us that, that new life. He's the one who regenerates us. That's in view in the catechism when it speaks of that new man. The new man is the, the new life of Jesus Christ that's been implanted into our hearts. So that we who were dead have been made alive again. But more than that, He not only gives us that new life, He then continues to work in us by His Spirit so that He's the one who works in us the willing and the doing of that which is 
right and pleasing to Him. All this is to say that our good works are really God-given. Unless it's for good reason that the Belgian Confession teaches us in in Article 24 that we are beholden to God for our good works. That is, God is the one who gets the credit. So good works themselves are God-given. But we must see this morning that that's true because conversion itself is God's work. We need to dig a little deeper and look not just at the fruit of conversion, but at conversion itself and remind ourselves that that too is God's work of grace. And is that not also a part of the book of Hosea? What explains why Gomer comes back? because she came to her senses one day and said, this is all foolish, I should go back to my faithful husband, Hosea. It's not how it went. How it went is that God told Hosea to go get her. Hosea chapter 3, verse 2. 3 verse 1, go yet love a woman of her friend, yet an adulteress. Verse 2, so I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an omer of barley and a half omer of barley. And I said unto her, thou shalt abide for me many days, and thou shalt not play the harlot, and thou shalt not be for another man, so will I also be for thee. He had to go into the house of Gomer's other lovers. He bought her back. And he gave everything that he had for her. There's a reason he has to add an omer and a half of barley because he did not have enough silver to redeem her back. He, he gives all the silver that he has, 15 pieces of silver, but that's not enough, so he has to add barley on top of that. He's giving everything he has to bring his wife back to him. And all this is a picture of God's work to bring us back, to draw us back with cords of love, to use language that's found elsewhere in this book. So that what we are reminded of is that conversion is really God's work of grace. Yes, we are active in it. Yes, we are conscious, thinking, willing in this. And that applies both to living the good works as well as to the, the conversion itself. But in the end, it's God's work of grace. And it's His work that stands behind whatever activity there is in our lives. in light of this truth that as his people we have every reason to praise him to God belongs all the glory for he is the one who made us his covenant people in the first place 
who made us his bride. So that we now belong to Jesus Christ. And remember, that redemption cost him everything he had. It was not silver or barley that he had to pay. It was his own precious blood. He laid down his life to make us his bride. And more than that, not only has he brought us into this relationship, he continues to be faithful to us so that though we are unfaithful to him, a thousand times over. Yet he receives us back again and again and again. Congregation, let us praise this great God. Let us extol the greatness of his mercy. And do so with joy of heart, knowing His great faithfulness to us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we praise Thee for Thy great faithfulness to us. That though we are guilty of spiritual adultery, yet Thou dost continue to love us according to Thy perfect, unconditional love. And we pray that the knowledge of this truth may lead us to turn away from our sins and turn again unto Thee, our God. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.